Bill. What? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Today, we're going to learn to make plutonium from common household items. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. Welcome to this week's episode of the Real Science Podcast. I'm the host, Josh McIntyre. So, hope you like the new intro tune. So, this week we've got a story industry using nonprofit organizations to help campaign against public health policies that they don't like. We've also got a story on a new compound that might help combat drug resistant tuberculosis. And finally, we've got a story on people using electrical shocks to the brain to help them improve their memory and why that might be interesting in the future. Um, but first, just to touch on a few other things before I get to the main stories, I want to talk briefly about the CRISPR baby situation that happened. So back in November, if you're not aware, a uh, Chinese researcher, Jian uh, Qihu, um, used CRISPR technology to edit some embryos before implantation uh, into some Chinese women. And he manipulated a gene called the CCR5 gene. Uh, his goal in doing this was to make the children that are born um, immune to HIV. Um, basically, this person was just searching out. He really wanted a Nobel Prize, and he thought this is how he was going to do it. He thought that looking forward, people are going to do CRISPR on people, which potentially people will, um, but that he wanted to be the first person to do it and so really make his name in the record books. He probably will be included in the science um, books of the future and history books in the future, um, but not for the reasons he wanted. Uh, he's currently living under house arrest and has been getting death threats for, um, for what he did. The reason he's getting death threats and the reason that he's under house arrest is because what he did was very unethical. He didn't fully explain kind of what was happening to the children, to the parents um, that were going to give birth to these kids. And there's just a whole host of issues that I'm not necessarily going to go into. But the reason I'm bringing it up now some researchers in Berkeley have done some some scans looking at uh, genomes associated with health records. They've got access to the UK Biobank, which has about 400,000 genomes in it. And what they did is they went through and looked for copies of the CCR5 gene. And they found that people that have two mutated copies of the CCR5 gene, so the intended output uh, from this CRISPR trial was supposed to have, have a fourfold increase in death after influenza infections. Um, so what that also means is they've got a 21% increase in mortality later in life between the ages of about 41 to 78. Um, and that's in comparison to people who only have one, uh, one copy mutation or no mutations at all in the CCR5 gene. So that's quite bad. And this is one of the reasons why people were so against doing this because we don't know the full implications of changing genetics. And it's unfair to do that on someone who isn't born yet. There has been some CRISPR done with people who have blood diseases and stuff like that to change um, the outcome or to try and potentially cure their blood disease. But that's different. Those people are already born. They've already, you know, they can give consent. They could be children, but they can still, there can be consent and there can be an understanding of what's going on. These people were not born. These children who are maybe about six or seven months old at this point have no idea. And the parents, again, fully didn't fully understand the ethics and the consent they're giving 
um, in relation to the trial. So this is potentially quite quite devastating, and I feel quite badly for these children that were born. Um, we'll see what happens. At, this is definitely going to be a continually developing story because these children, like I said, are only about six or seven months old now. Um, so this is going to be a developing story for years and potentially decades to come, uh, depending on how these children fare. So moving on from that sad story, so another uh, announcement that happened recently um, is NASA announced that they're going to fund three private companies to start sending um, equipment to the moon. So there's been some rough plans on the books to send humans back to the moon by 2028. Uh, recently, Donald Trump proposed moving that up and offered NASA basically kind of whatever money they wanted. And he wants people to be on the moon by 2024. There's a host of issues why that's probably not going to happen, why there's why that might not happen, or why it's convoluted to do that. Nonetheless, NASA is taking the money, and they're basically funding um, private companies. So the three companies they've chosen are Astrobotic, Intuitive Machines, and Orbit Beyond. And these different companies, these three companies, are going to send just scientific equipment to different positions on the moon to potentially help out people once a manned mission is sent back. Now, again, we haven't sent a manned mission since the 70s. The last one was uh, Apollo 18 in 1972, I believe. And no people have been back since. There's some Chinese landers that are currently on the moon at the moment. Um, one is on the dark side of the moon, which is pretty interesting because we haven't really seen a lot back there because we can't see it because of the orientation and everything. Um, but what these companies are doing and why this is, is kind of a neat announcement is that Again, NASA has awarded these companies um, between 77 and $97 million um, each to send various pieces of equipment. And the first company that's trying to go up, um, Orbit Beyond, is hoping to land um, in the Mare Iberium, which is a lava plane, and they're hoping to land there by September of 2020, so just over a year away from now. Uh, Intuitive Machines is hoping to land by July of 2021, and Astrobotic is hoping to land also in July of 2021. Um, and the first two, Orbit Beyond and Intuitive, are going to use SpaceX to move up there, and Astrobotic says they haven't chosen a company, a delivery system yet, so it's possible they're going to go with SpaceX as well. They might go with uh, Amazon's or Jeff Bezos's company, which I think is called Beyond Blue. Um, that might be Boeing's company as well. But but basically what's, what's so interesting about this is that Jim... Bridenstein, I think I'm saying his name right, who's a NASA administrator, says they're basically just taking, NASA's taking a back seat. So they presented the cargo that they want on the moon, and it's all stuff that can be ready within about a year to get sent up. And they let the companies pick out which ones they wanted to send, basically, and kind of where. It doesn't sound like they let them pick locations exactly, but they kind of gave them some options of, of locations to pick. And that NASA is very much taking a step back. They're not taking a hands-on role. They're not creating the lunar modules or the landers themselves. They're letting these private companies do it. Now, the reason they want to do that is that they want a private industry that's able to get things below um, low Earth orbit. So right now, there's a bunch of companies like SpaceX and like Planet and stuff like that that send satellites up constantly to low earth orbit that come and degrade back into earth and get burned up in the atmosphere like the starlink satellites i spoke about last week and again like planet that sends up these little mini satellites that just go up and take pictures all the time so that's pretty cool but what nasa is hoping to do is as jettison this kind of um this private industry into 
getting things onto the moon and getting things beyond the moon as well because private industry can do that at a much lower cost because NASA is spread out across the entire United States. It's very expensive for it to do that correctly and private industry can potentially work to cut costs in a large number of ways and also potentially could get there to the moon and help other people do that as well to potentially really push our civilization into a like space-faring civilization, potentially getting to Mars a lot easier and a lot cheaper into other planets beyond in the near future. So that's pretty cool. Um, again, there's not really a lot going on other than they've just given these companies some money and the, the NASA is taking a very back seat and is trying to let the private companies do their own thing in this regard. So that's cool in itself. Let me move on to the real stories. So the first one is, um, you know, it's something you would hear out of out of a bad movie a bad science fiction movie or a bad like kind of political thriller movie right um but basically what's happening is that there's this company that's a non-profit organization called the international life science institute or ILSI, um and a group of researchers at the university of cambridge have filed for freedom of information act requests along with a couple of other um non-profit groups and other researchers to pull about seventeen thousand pages of emails um, from the company from between 2015 and 2018. And what they found is that this company, this nonprofit, this International Life Science Institute, um, basically is conversing with a lot of the companies that back them. So just a little bit more background on them. They're supposed to be an independent scientific body um, that gets funding from corporations. So they're funded by Nestle, General Mills, Mars Incorporated, uh, Mars Incorporated rather, Monsanto and Coca-Cola. And so, so again, they're supposed to be doing scientifically rigorous and independent studies looking at health and various other things or their funding, research at universities and stuff to look at various important things. What's happened and what these emails are showing is that they're basically cherry picking data pretty much. Um, and they're also very heavily lobbying um, people for, for specific policy recommendations. So it seems to be a very coordinated and specific strategy on how best to approach World Health Organization officials, specifically the Director General, Dr. Margaret Chan, and they're trying to shift her position on sugar-sweetened products. So this company was founded by a former Coca-Cola Senior Vice President, Alex Malasplina, um, in 1978. And they state specifically on their website that, that none of its bodies conduct lobbying activities or make policy recommendations. Again, it's a nonprofit organization, so it's currently exempt from um, taxation in the U.S. Um, and what these researchers have done, so they've actually, it's a, it's a published article that's been published in a um, Globalization and Health. And I'll link to the actual article so you can read it yourself if you're interested. But basically what these people are proposing is that the tax-exempt policies um, be removed. So it, it is a published journal article where they've done some research, but um, it feels very much more like a kind of a news article um, to me, but it's still interesting nonetheless just to point it out. The reason I picked up on this, I've seen other articles like this in the past. Um, the reason I picked up on this one in particular is because it kind of really grates on me. Part of the reason I started this podcast and part of the reason I think science communication is really important is because people don't understand science sometimes and there seems to be large arguments. And I think science arguments and 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 questioning science is obviously really good um and having the ability to do that but corporations or you know non-profits like this is masquerading this international life science institute 
that's masquerading as this, you know, scientifically rigorous and independent body is really muddying the waters on what science is actually saying. So there is science out there to say that, you know, eating too much sugar is bad and that things like soda taxes really work on actually reducing obesity in, you know, cities that are under a soda tax and stuff like that. And that that can actually make a healthier population. But this nonprofit would have you believe that that's not true and that you can make lifestyle changes instead and would push through things like that to reject um, policies that would impact their uh, benefactors, basically, that would you know affect Nestle or General Mills or something like that. And they show the emails that these researchers are talking about show direct connections, not only to um, professors at the University of Washington, as well as a direct connection to the US uh, Center for Disease Control, um, which is you know quite damning that these people were working with the CDC and with other professors and with scientific institutions to really push this agenda. And it's just, it grates on me to a degree that that people would take science, these are you know most likely very smart people, but they're taking and twisting science just to make a profit, just to push their own policy agenda because that's what's good for their shareholders. Um, and I understand that. I think there is you know a nuanced conversation about what shareholders means and what corporations should do, and that there is generally a byline almost always in corporations that their first and foremost thing is to make money for shareholders. And so that's why corporations do things that seem evil is because when they're asked for questions about, you know, potentially making money for shareholders or doing things that are, you know, quote unquote, the ethically right thing to do, they always default to the share money for shareholders instead because that's the thing they're supposed to do. You know, maybe there's a, a deeper conversation having about what corporations mean, and I think a lot of people would, would want to have that. I'm not trying to do that here. I'm just trying to point out that, that there are sometimes boogeymen in the closet trying to influence how policy works, and I think most people know that, that lobbying efforts are done, but that there is people that are actively working to manipulate what science says to the general public and to manipulate how it's represented in policy um, agendas. And again, I just wanted to point that out because it annoys the hell out of me. Um, all right, but from that, I'm going to move on to a slightly happier topic, and we're going to talk about tuberculosis, which is not happy. So tuberculosis has um, infected and killed somewhere around 1.7 million people um, in 2017, and it's you know, it's, a, it's a fascinating disease, um, and it's 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 just insane. It's it's something that if you study, it's it's obviously evolved with humans over millennia in that a 50% infective dose, so 50-50 chance of you getting infected from tuberculosis only requires about six tuberculosis cells, which is absolutely nothing. When you think about the, the, the head of like a needle or the pin of like a needle um, can contain anywhere about a million cells, depending on kind of what you're looking at. Six cells is absolutely nothing, and, and it's not necessarily an airborne disease, but if you had it on a bench top in front of you, you know, it wouldn't take much to waft past and have six cells come off the bench top, even though it's not necessarily airborne like some viruses and stuff like that. So that's pretty crazy in and of itself, and it's, it is, its main host is humans. Um, a lot of other diseases that are quite bad, um, like Zika and stuff like that, are, the main host isn't necessarily a person, 
but for tuberculosis it is and it's you know it, it will go on for years and years um, and be latent before coming about and actually killing people so work to be done to eradicate it is obviously a high on the list for the world health organization as well as anyone else who's interested in kind of health around the world especially in developing countries um, and there's been a lot of work people are always trying to find new kind of antibiotics usually in universities though most new antibiotics there hasn't been a lot of new antibiotics for about the last 30 years and for tuberculosis in particular there's about four antibiotics that work on it and basically what you have to do is you have to take those four different antibiotics and some kind of regimen sometimes um you can just take one again it depends on who's who you're working with and kind of who's prescribing it basically there's different drug protocols the who um, employs but basically you have to take antibiotics for about six months and taking antibiotics for that long is going to likely mean low compliance for anybody but especially again people in developing countries that are really far away from any kind of an aid where the antibiotics can't be kept in, in a fridge the whole time and stuff like that or there's the same old story for anybody anywhere where people will take antibiotics they will start to feel better and then they will stop taking them now most antibiotic courses last about a week and so people will start taking them after three or four days again taking antibiotics to cure you from tuberculosis takes six months so some researchers at the university in washington instead of focusing on developing new antibiotics what they did was try and work on finding things that would work in parallel with the antibiotics that are already existing so they just did um, some random trials with some with a bank of of molecules that have been pulled out and one of the antibiotics that they focused on was isozyanide um, which i'm pretty sure i'm not pronouncing right um, but they found a molecule that they're calling c10 which seems to work alongside the antibiotic and sensitizes bacteria to the antibiotic it also seems to prevent drug resistance from arising and in some cases so far in the lab um, it even seems to be able to reverse drug resistance so they're not sure on the exact um, mechanism of what's going on but when you get tuberculosis so you can work with mycobacterium tuberculosis on a plate or in a lab and it, it's relatively happy in the lab it gives everything it needs um, and so it's actually it gets a lot easier to kill so testing it there is one thing um, but what these researchers did was they actually created conditions that were more similar to when it gets in when it's actually in an infection because when it infects people um, our body will obviously recognize it and will insist it and it grows very slowly and so you get little nodules usually inside your lungs or always inside your lungs and that's why when they go and look for um, when you're looking to see if someone has tuberculosis you can get an x-ray sometimes what they're looking for is kind of masses in your lungs um, which can be an indication of tuberculosis and so what these researchers have done is they created a low oxygen environment that was difficult for tuberculosis to exist and when that happens it creates a biofilm so a whole bunch of bacteria get together and kind of create this huge interlock um, interlocked mechanism basically um, with low oxygen but then they also create their own environment inside of that and that makes them much more difficult to kill but also represents kind of real life conditions of someone with an infection better doing that and then also introducing the c10 molecule into that um, actually prevented the bacteria from creating their biofilm in the first place hence making them easier to kill already um, but then it also seemed to curb um, the development of antibiotic resistance later on with like lower doses of antibiotics um, treating them 
And what's more and more interesting, and they don't have, again, they don't have the exact mechanism worked out here, but it seemed to actually reverse antibiotic resistance in about one out of a million cells. So low percentage, low percentage, but all the same, that's still a really fascinating thing that if you could give this, um, this compound, the C10, in parallel with an antibiotic, you could potentially still treat antibiotic resistant bacteria um, and also, again, treat these people and potentially also quicker, I think is the hope, because they really want to get that six month treatment plan down to, if you could get it down to a week, that would be incredible. Again, tuberculosis is very slow growing, so that's probably not going to happen for a long time. Um, also, something needs to be said. The C10, though, it's very exciting. One of the things that needs to be said, though, is the C10, although it's very exciting, is still in very early stages. It's only been in the lab so far. Um, it's only just been discovered. These people are probably publishing the paper because they want to get funding um, for things in the future. They might have already started a patenting process on it. Um, but typically for a drug to go from this kind of stage to being on a shelf, so to speak, would take about 10 to 20 years, potentially. Um, and that's just because of all the paperwork that goes along with it, along with a whole host of um, clinical trials that have to go on. They'd have to do more um, cell trials. Um, and more animal trials and then on to human trials and mass human trials as well. So there's there's a lot of work to be done here and also just all the paperwork and the stuff of getting things through the FDA to get it approved. Um, now it's possible for that process to be sped up in the near future. Um, I know there's been some proposed changes in FDA rules and stuff like that, but I still wouldn't expect something like this um, to be out in less than 10 years, really. And again, that's if it gets all the way through the process. There's a lot of drugs that make it to this step. Um, there's a lot that don't, but there's a lot of compounds that will make it to this step where they show really exciting promise, but then they don't move on any further um, because they actually st stall out in other clinical trials um, along the way. But nonetheless, I talked about it today because I think it's a really interesting, possibly quite exciting thing for, for a really intense disease that... Um, really is going to be a long time um, to kill and really difficult to kill, especially if people are going to continue to be anti-vaccine um, and not really want to go in with the science and, and how how this uh, whole kind of medical science works. Um, but yeah, so I think I'll move on to my last story, which is about people shocking themselves in the brain with electricity. So that's a fun thing to do, I guess, if you've got nothing else going on. So what these researchers have done is they use transcranial direct current stimulation, TDCS. Um, this kind of work has been around for uh, a few years. There's a, uh, an episode of uh, Radio Lab that came out a couple of years ago. It's called 10 Volt Nirvana. I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but it's a little old now. Um, but in it, they talk about how this journalist goes and she's playing a video game where she's like holding a gun and pointing it at a, a screen of sorts. And at first, she can't keep up with shooting the targets, the, the video game that's coming at her. And then they strap this kind of like helmet thing on her that sends this transcranial direct simulation um, across her, her scalp in a very specific region. And then she plays the game again, and she's unbelievably better at it, and she's more focused, and she, can, she just whizzes through the game and was waiting for it to get hard and never did. Um, so that's the same kind of technology. Basically, what you're doing is you can send electrical signals or electrical pulses through the scalp, which will actually affect different neural pathways. 
Now, the other thing is that if you go onto YouTube or if you go on to, I think they sell them on Amazon potentially, um, you can buy these machines yourself. And if you go on YouTube, you can see people using them. They will give you all kinds of ideas about, you know, if you put it here for X amount of time, you can learn faster or you can study better or you can learn other language easier, yada, yada, yada. The people on YouTube, obviously not scientists necessarily, right? You know, some of them might be a hold my tongue because there's probably some other PhD out there doing weird stuff on YouTube as well. Um, but I would very strongly recommend not doing that. And they also say in this paper, uh, they don't recommend doing this. It's very early stages. There's some information and there does seem to be an effect. Some of these people do seem to learn better. Um, this paper in particular, they're looking at people and their increased capacity for memory. Um, and what they've done in this work is, is uh, they put a, the TDCS machine on the left, rosto rostro rostro lateral prefrontal cortex, um, which is supposed to be important for high-level thought, including monitoring, integrating information, process, and other areas of the brain. Um, just so, if you want to point to it yourself, this area is located on the, behind the left side of the forehead, between the eyebrow and the hairline. And what they did is they did a memory test. So they had people whose average age was 20, and they had each group contained 13 women and 11 men. Uh, participants were shown a series of 80 words on a computer screen. For each word, participants were instructed to either imagine either themselves or another person interacting with a word, depending on whether the words were self or other. Um, and they also appeared on the screen. So the combinations could be like gold and other, and then that would prompt them to imagine a friend wearing a gold necklace. The following day, the participants then returned to the laboratory for three tests, one of their memory, one of their reasoning ability, and one of their visual perception. Uh, each participant wore a device that sent a weak electrical current through an electrode on the scalp to decrease or increase the excitability of the neurons in the left rostrolateral prefrontal cortex. Increasing their excitability makes neurons more likely to fire, which then enhances connections between neurons. So how they do so they did the first 30 minutes it was an hour-long trial again on the second day the first 30 minutes nobody received any electrical current at all and then the second 30 minutes um, they were split into three groups one had the neurons excited one had their neurons suppressed and then the third group again just received a sham simulation the entire hour um, the first 30 minutes were kind of getting baseline and then compare everybody and then again, they had the excitability and the suppression. So the excitability group, the ability, the ones that should have turned the neurons on and actually lit this kind of center up more, had a 15% average higher score um, than people who received the sham simulation. And people who really received um, the fake simulation only increased by 2.6% um, in comparison to people from the first for the second session. Um, so there's some kind of a placebo effect going on there, but it's not statistically significant. Probably just got better as time went on over the hour. And then the people who had their neurons suppressed um, also increased their memory recall by five points, by five percentage points. Um, people who had their neurons suppressed also increased their memory recall by five percent. Um, so again, not statistically significant for this, but again, very small group as well. Um, but that was really it. So on the memory recall, there was an increase, um, again, 15%. Yeah, so that's really it. So they had a 15% increase in memory 
Um, but as far as the test for um, reasoning ability and visual perception, there was no change. Um, the reasoning ability, they asked them basically to find if there was groups of words that were um, related, or sorry, if they were found if, and to identify if groups of words were analogies for each other. Um, again, no change there. And then the visual perception group uh, test, they asked, they would present them with words and then ask them like how many, which word has the most straight lines in it. So examples would be symbol, museum, painter, energy. And then the museum has the most straight lines in it because of a couple of M's and U's and stuff. Um, yeah, they didn't see any change at all there. So again, just interesting that they helped people um, remember stuff more. Again, 15% is not a huge number. And again, it's a very small, um, small group at the moment, only about 24 people. Um, but yeah, still interested, still interesting. And they, they, again, the stress out that this TDCS machines are, are commercially available. Um, people use them on YouTube all the time and you know, it's, it might be funny to go and watch some of these people do this stuff and they can be quite convincing, but don't buy them. These don't necessarily know what, what's going on and what they're doing. Um, it's just interesting to see how this has worked. And I don't think it'd be far off in the future, you know, maybe a cheesy, um, sci-fi movie or sci-fi book or something like that where people are wearing helmets of some kind that have different uh, direct cranial stimulation for different purposes you know people that are surgeons or something like that or people that are fighter pilots that are already wearing helmets maybe for instance um that are having this to you know kind of increase their ability to solve problems and make you know quick and fast um quick and fast good decisions and really to really understand stuff better. Maybe we're going to see children all issuing, being issued helmets before they go to school to then help increase their capacity to learn and uptake new information better. Who knows? Maybe that's the future. Maybe it's not. Maybe this is all going to be bunk in a few years, but it's interesting at the moment. And then, like I said, there's a lot of people that are out there doing weird stuff, shooting themselves in the head with electricity. So yeah, that's all I've got for today. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Um, if you do, check out my website. It's scifiction.com, S-C-I-F-I-X-I-O-N. Um, feel free. I've got some stories up there. I also got uh, a bunch of episodes of the podcast up on there. Um, if you like listening as well, I'm also on Spotify and Stitcher. Um, feel free to give me a rate and review on any of those or on iTunes. Um, really just helps other people find the show. Also, if you want to help me su help support the show and help me keep doing it, um, head over to Patreon patreon.com slash sci-fiction i'm going to have some subscriber only content coming out in the next week or so i'm just going to talk about some science fiction that i really like and kind of how it relates to the world as it is now so anyways head over there and if you like the show give me a buck or two and just help support me do it and hope you guys like the show and hope to talk to you next week all right bye